Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, someone that I enjoy immensely uh, having in always, and it can be on any number of themes with someone uh, this astute. His name is Ben Carson. He's from Detroit with an interesting childhood, an outstanding medical career, and then he wandered into politics and is now uh, the Secretary for Housing and Urban Development. We're thrilled that Secretary Ben Carson can join us uh, this you. morning. Wonderful to have you with us again. Not a politician, uh, Mr. No. Mr. Well, I know you're not a politician, <laughs> but you have to deal with him. Yes. I want to begin on a direct note, which is, of course, this nation is riveted by all that's occurred and Everyone has a different opinion. Very few of us actually understand the damage these guns cause. Mm -hmm. You were at John Hopkins out of University of Michigan, wandered over to John Hopkins. When did you first stand there in an operating room looking at what some of these firearms yeah. can, can harm us? Well, uh, as an intern, uh, right in the the middle of the city and the emergency rooms, you would see people come in with just horrendous wounds. And uh, in many cases, they were people who weren't directly involved in the conflict. They were bystanders. And uh, sometimes they had to deal with children who were bystanders who had gunshot wounds to the head. Uh, it's, it's devastating. The impact, even though often we're able to save their lives, you know, they have a lifelong impact from brain damage. What we've seen in the last number of days, including the president's press conference as he went out to the helicopter to go to Dayton, to go to El Paso, is a president, whatever anybody's politics, he's struggling with this issue like anyone else. Clearly, more than anyone in the administration, you have an immediacy to this topic. What is your prescription to get us to some form of sanity yes. to avoid this horrific multiple deaths. Well, you know, we have to be quite analytical here. Um, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, we gotta get rid of the guns and that'll solve the problem. It's, that's, that's not the problem. There've been guns for hundreds of years here. What there hasn't been is a society where people have sort of lost their moral compass and, and lost their identity. And there's so much of, of what made America into a great nation that we no longer like to talk about the can-do attitude, uh, the belief system we, of, about doing good to the others. I can agree with all that. Mr. Secretary, we had that can-do attitude with an Ithaca shotgun or a five-shot Winchester 22 Magnum that had one or two or maybe the big thing was five bullets in the cartridge. We're now dealing with massive technological arms, which you and other surgeons see every day mm -hmm. in, in, our, in our wards nationwide. Has the technology overcome our moral compass? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think it's the technology. I, I think it's what's happened to us as human beings. You know, you have people now, you'll notice as soon as they sit down, what do they do? They pull up their phone you know and they start looking at that and then when they get home I saw some statistics lately about how much time people spend uh, you know with social media 
and with video games and things of that nature rather than spending time with other human beings and developing mm. relationships and even in families you don't you, you don't sit down and have dinner together and talk about what's going on and, and I think it removes people from reality and it helps right. you to, to dehumanize other human beings that's that's the real problem now is it is it terrible when you have the ability to kill a lot of people of course it is but we need to get back again to the basics of why people are doing this ben carson with us he is the hud secretary paul sweeney yes uh, so secretary carson thanks so much for being with us give us a sense i know you're in town for the opportunity zone discussion give us a sense give our listeners a sense of what opportunity zones are what they're intended yes. to do and are they working uh, yes, Opportunity Zones were created as uh, an outcropping uh, of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And uh, they provide the governors of all 50 states, as well as five territories, the ability to designate 25% of their economically distressed areas as Opportunity Zones into which people can invest unrealized capital gains. And uh, if you leave them in long term, you get some very substantial benefits. Uh, if you leave them in for five years, 10% decrement on the capital gains old on the original investment. 15% if you leave it in for seven years. If you leave it in for 10 years, there's no capital gains that you have to pay on the new money that was realized as a result of investment. So it's a significant inducement. And, uh, you know, some people have complained that it's just a mechanism for rich people to get richer. But, of course, rich people are going to get richer anyway because they're going to invest their money somewhere. So why not induce them to invest into the areas that traditionally are economically deprived? And, you know, this money can be used, you know, f f uh, to buy things in these zones, to invest in things in these zones, to invest in stocks uh, associated with things in these zones, a whole host of a variety of things and are used uh, frequently as the bridging funding uh, for projects. So uh, it's a tremendous opportunity. We've already seen uh, more than $49 billion, uh, and I think it's just going to continue to increase. And I've already seen a number of projects around the country that have been uh, facilitated through the Opportunity Zone. So do we have evidence that uh, these investments are creating jobs or increasing uh, real estate values in some of these uh, difficult uh, urban areas or just uh, you know, uh, well, economic I, challenged areas? Well, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to some of the people uh, who have been able to obtain some jobs, some of the young men. And uh, I was just uh, really impressed by them saying, we didn't believe that this was ever going to happen for us. But they've been taught some various skills, like how to reinstall windows and uh, painting and landscaping. And it completely changes their outlook. It's one of the reasons that we've spent a lot of time on Section 3. Section 3 of the Housing Act says that if you're getting uh, HUD funding, you have an obligation to hire, train, or give contracts to the low-income people in those areas. Been on the books for 50 years. Hardly been used because it's onerous. It's very difficult to use. So we've changed that. The new rules will be coming out very shortly. Um, and if you can give people those skills, they can climb that ladder. And the other right. thing is to remove the, um, the obstacles, like if you make more right. money, you have to pay more rent. 
I don't care. Secretary Carson, there's only one thing I care about, and I'm honored that you're here with our Michael Barr. What are you at HUD going to do about the Detroit Tigers? Oh. Their record this year. <laughs> what, can you help me with your Detroit Tigers? They're not worse than the Orioles. <laughs> you're, you're, hitting it on, you're hitting it on all cylinders this year. Very good. Ben Carson, thank you so much with his fandom of the Baltimore Orioles. And the, Mr. Barr, do you have any words for the secretary on uh, what we do with the Tigers this year? Uh, Mr. Carson, I'm so glad you're here to help me out. I appreciate it. <laughs> ben Carson, thank you so much. Much. He is out in support with the president of Opportunity Zones. They uh, uh, are a program to uh, jumpstart certain parts of geographies around America. And we thank him for his comments on the real challenges of El Paso and Dayton as well. Secretary Carson, thank you. Joining us now, Ron Temple with Lazard Asset Management. We are thrilled he's with us because he pulls in not only analysis of equity markets and cross-asset work as well, but with a real take on the international uh, uh, economy. Let me start with your clients, your 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 uh, uh, investors. What are they saying right now? What are they saying after this early August that we've seen? Well, I think clients are still trying to figure out what, which, well, they're trying to figure out how to disentangle a lot of conflicting signals. They, they look and see an economy in the U.S. that's doing really reasonably well. They see the household finances looking good. They see a consumer economy. The U.S. always keep in mind 70% of GDP's consumption. So they see positive signals there. They see a Fed that a year ago looked like it was on track to make a policy mistake that was talking very hawkishly about how Fed funds would be at 340 by 2020 from the dot plot. Now they've got a Fed that's basically saying, okay, we realize we might have made a mistake without saying those words. We're in a mid-cycle adjustment, so easing policy. They've got an ECB that's easing. So they've got a lot of positive signals, and yet they have a trade war that continues to get worse. They've got geopolitical risks that are very difficult to kind of quantify and react to, and they're just trying to figure out whether we're in uncharted territory. Paul, future's negative 21 right now. Exactly. So, so Ron, let's talk about the trade war a little bit. It doesn't appear that we're going to get any resolution in the near, maybe even intermediate term. What is your sense as you you talk to companies in your portfolio about what that does to corporate confidence? Is it, is it impacting business decision-making, do you think? I think there's no question it's impacting business decisions and business confidence and the willingness to invest in CapEx. Um, and by the way, invest in hiring. And so this is one of the biggest challenges. I just mentioned the consumer's doing well. What we're trying to figure out is how long can you head down this negative trajectory on trade? How long can you see a global industrial slowdown before that starts to translate into lower job growth numbers? And if you look at the last three months, we had 140,000 non-farm payroll per month. The year to date was 165,000. So we've seen a deceleration. Um, the companies tend to put up a brave face and try to act like they're working through it and they have flexibility. I think that's more optics and um, basically stage management as opposed to reality. So, so I do think it's a real challenge, but so far you haven't seen as many uh, anecdotes as you might want in terms of trying to put quantification around it. And of course, the big thing is, you know, as we think about the Federal Reserve, and obviously, as you mentioned, they're obviously taking a much more dovish tone. Are you concerned that there might be diminishing returns on what the Fed does going forward? Well, let's just put it this way. 25 basis points on Fed funds won't make you decide to build a new factory. Right. Right. I mean, <laughs> okay. so if we really think about the quantum here, even if the Fed cuts rates as much as the Fed funds futures imply, which is another four rate cuts by the end of 2020, 
that doesn't offset the lack of predictability and the uncertainty arising from trade policy. And I should note, by the way, I think the markets aren't worried enough about trade. I think actually trade is going to be a multi-year phenomenon. And I think we're right. going to take a lot of non-tariff actions that are going to surprise investors over the next few years. So what's your, it's an equity guy, I say this with great respect, Ron, is an equity guy What's your take on the run rate of American GDP? Are you investing, assuming sub 2% real GDP? I think that's the realistic assessment you have to make because we're going to have sub 2% in the U.S. and hopefully we'll get 1% out of Europe. And you'll have deceleration in China. I mean, effectively, you know, this, I don't want to accept that it's the new normal, but this does seem to be a normal level of so, GDP. And we had a one-year blip, by the way, which, you know, if you yeah, pull, okay. up, pull up GDP on your Bloomberg chart and look at the last 10 years, it's hard to find that blip. Right, right. So, but, but then swing it back to then what do you look for in equities? Is it all about revenue growth? I mean, is that the proxy in a sub 2% GDP world? My simple back of the envelope is to say if you've got, let's say 2% to make the numbers easy, 2% real GDP with 1.5% to 2% inflation, then I should have somewhere on 35 to 4% revenue growth. Maybe I get some operating leverage, even though the labor markets are getting tighter. So maybe I get a little operating margin there. And then I got share buybacks. So it seems to me like a 5 to 7% earnings environment. And if there's one thing I'm certain of, is the returns on financial assets in the last decade will not be repeated for the next decade. You got 17% per annum out of the S&P. That is not happening again. I think you're going to be getting something in the mid to high single digits. So are there sectors of the equity market that uh, you think investors should be overweight here, given we're 10 plus years in the in the cycle and, you know, there's only so much left for the Fed? I, I really think it comes down to single security selection. I mean, you know, within the tech sector, we definitely like some names that there are some names we think are really overpriced, right? We, if we look at some of the kind of hotter areas in tech, say in the small and mid-cat software and some of the cloud type companies, they've gone from 10 times sales to 20 times sales. Right, right. I mean, so there's some very high valuations in certain parts That's of the amazing. tech sector. But then if you look at kind of some of the bigger tech companies that really have entrenched franchises, they still look yeah. pretty attractive to us. So, so it's really company by company, and it all requires that bottom-up fundamental analysis. Ron Temple, thank you for joining us today with Lazard Asset Management, particularly delaying uh, for that conversation with the uh, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Mr. Ben Carson. Ron Temple with uh, Lazard. I want to bring in uh, Greg Valier from AGF Investments. He's the chief U.S. policy strategist, Tom, and there's a lot to uh, discuss with him. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Just let's start off a little bit with China. It looks like the White House is making another little move today. I'm just trying to get a sense of how important it is, indicating that it's holding off on its decision to allow certain U.S. companies to do business with Huawei. I know Huawei is a big, big part of this discussion. How important do you view this development? I think it is important, and I think that it reflects that within this administration, there's a growing debate over maybe looking at Plan B. I think Plan B would be a modest deal. Maybe you would have some accommodation of Huawei. Maybe you'd have the Chinese buying a ton of agricultural products from the U.S. A few little things. There's still so many huge issues that have not been resolved and probably won't be resolved until 2020. But a small deal, a part, you know, Plan B, I think is not out of the question. And do you think a Plan B is possible prior to the election? 
yeah, I think it's possible this fall. Uh, I, th- I think the bigger deal is a much, much tougher call. As you know, Goldman Sachs and others are saying, no, maybe it won't be until after the election. But I think there's got to be something, as I think both Trump and Z are, uh, need to save yeah. some face. Uh, Greg, one of your charms is you actually get outside Washington, D.C. <laughs> we find this to be a modern miracle. Color Iowa for us. Gail Collins had that hilarious column, um, I'm going to say, 10 weeks ago or so in the New York Times on Iowa. You, you know, how many Democratic candidates would you shake their hands before you went to bed on a given night? We forget that President Obama won Iowa yep. by almost six percentage points a long time ago. How Republican is Iowa? Well, it, first of all, it's, I highly recommend getting outside of the Beltway. And oh, thank I've been, you. I've been in the, I've been in <laughs> you the Midwest. You sound like my wife. <laughs> I've been in the Midwest a bit this summer, and it really is striking. Nobody cares about impeachment. Uh, people do say, though, they're sick of the Trump tweets. I think that's a real vulnerability uh, for him. But you mentioned purple states, and Iowa is a classic example. Uh, it voted for Trump uh, two years ago. This year, you've got a recession, if not a depression, in the farm belt. Yeah. That hurts Trump. Well, let's color that. What's the economic measure, the Valier meter on the American farmer? I mean, forget the hysteria, the gloom, the banner headlines on cable TV. What's the actual story that you observe among the American farmer? In a word, Tom, uncertainty. The farmers don't know if China will be in buying agricultural products. They don't know how much more they'll get from subsidies. And also in the Midwest, companies that rely on component parts from China are also uncertain. They can't make long-term plans because these parts are getting scarce and more expensive. So throughout the Midwest, seemingly a stronghold for Trump, you're seeing far more uncertainty. It's interesting, Greg, you paint a picture there that that clearly suggests that President Trump uh, really needs to get a deal done. Yet I'm not so sure about President Xi. What is your sense there about his need to get a deal done, any deal done, rather than, you know, wait a couple of years? If there's been a miscalculation, I think it's the U.S. miscalculating how uh, strident the Chinese are going to be. They'll, they'll withstand this. I think that they are not in a big hurry. They feel if they wait, they might get a new president. Greg, in honor of you, I'm going to put out inflation-adjusted log soybeans. You can only do that on the Bloomberg as well. I mean, farm prices really matter as you go to an election, don't they? I mean, in terms of the states that matter of how we choose the next president, is it a price depression that you observe in corn and soybeans and the other grains? Well, you see that, but I would argue the three states that really will determine the next election are Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And in those places, I've been there recently, you hear people talk a little bit, believe it or not, Tom, about inflation, about a very tight labor market having to pay more money, about more expensive component parts. So I'm not a believer that inflation is dead. In fact, when everyone in the world says inflation is dead, I get worried when you see a consensus it's that unanimous. Well, Chairman Paul agrees with Greg Vallier because he keeps bringing up trimmed Dallas CPI, which is a little more lofty, mm-hmm. a little more service sector lofty. Mr. Vallier, thank you so much and congratulations on a, a note that went on the edge of viral this week on Plan B, as it's called. Paul.
Uh, on the equity markets now, uh, it has been a joy to speak to her. Alicia Levine brings a prodigious quantitative ability uh, to the looking of equities. I want to go really, really retail right now, Alicia, which is I'm on the veranda this weekend. I've got the beverage of my choice, and there's a little bit of familial tension. Somebody was like, let's stay in the market. And somebody said, we're not getting back in in January. They missed this big move. Now what for those people that have not enjoyed December 26 to the beginning of August? What do they do? And there are many people who did not enjoy. There's a lot of those There's people. a lot of people out there who didn't enjoy December what 26. What do they do? They missed the alpha. They missed it. I think here it's okay to wait. That means there's a, probably a better entry point, but it doesn't mean that the game is over right now. This is not the beginning of the end, but there is more uncertainty and more un- unpleasant headlines, I suspect, coming around that September 1st to the Fed meeting, yeah. September 18th. You're going to have like a weird two and a half weeks in early September where unfortunately the headlines could hit the market. And then there are certain places where you'd expect the market to fall. All right. So the the, the, the big issue for the markets clearly is trade. And we get another little tit for tat. It seems like every single day, whether how you set the renminbi or you know, whether Huawei comes like it is today. How do you kind of put that into your model? I'm sure there's not an input column in your spreadsheet for trade. So how do you f- kind of put that into your outlook? It, it's, a, it's a great question because in many ways, it's very hard to game all of this out. So I'll say this. I think that the steadying ability of trade is less is you don't need as much positive outcome on trade to steady the market that is you could have the president say we're going to hold off on that 10 percent, but we're keeping the other tariffs and we're going to keep on negotiating we don't know how long this is going to go but if you get back we haven't heard that yet you haven't heard that yet (laughs) that sounds reasonable to me look (laughs) look it's 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 clear that the administration has stepped over a red line and that the economy is biting back right so the economy was strong enough and resilient enough to take all the headlines and all the actions and the tariffs up till this point. And when you only have Peter Navarro saying, this is a great idea, I think it's a signal. And the bond market is telling the administration and the equity market saying, you've now gone too far. Certainly the markets are speaking, there's no question. And that doesn't even go to the adjustment of the dot plot uh, with our central bank when we see it. Another question for the weekend. I got lucky. I have some duration. I have a coupon price up. I had a lovely note from Gary Schilling, who's the call of a generation on low. What do you do when you get a double digit gain in fixed income? Do you just go to cash and check? What do you actually physically do at BNY (laughs) Mellon when you got double digit pop? We had this great conversation yesterday about what do you do with, with fixed income right now? Tactically, it's reasonable to assume you hit the 2016 lows on yields, right? So you probably get another rally here out of that. Having said that, you've you know you've made your money this year, and I suspect that we're going that the trade yeah. is going to be in the opposite direction. And I would you know I yeah. could see going into investment grade credit here from sovereign debt. Yeah. For all of you worldwide in coast to coast, we're having a uh, West Coast, East Coast, New York weekend. We're going far west to New Jersey. We're going to do the golf tournament, the Northern Trust tournament in a bit. And then we go far east. Alicia, I believe you will try to get to the Hamptons this weekend amidst two two presidential fundraisers as well. How do you turn left in the Hamptons (laughs) this weekend? You go late. (laughs) 
You go late. You like work, what? Two a.m. You work all day Friday, and yeah. you go late because nobody goes late on Friday. <laughs> yeah, you, you work go, all day. Yeah, you go late. On, then what do you do Sunday night? I can't come home because I got you know I got the I got to take. Well, if I have the Sikorsky, I can do the it. Surveillance I don't, helicopter. Pharaoh has it right now. Okay. But if I have the helicopter, I'm okay. What do you do on Friday, a Sunday, coming home after a presidential weekend in the Hamptons? You never take 27, and you take only side roads. There it is. The, Boom. the information <laughs> you need. Your traffic report. Alicia Levine of BNY Mellon uh, this weekend on the side roads of the Hamptons. That's a good strategy. I got yep. so lost. Once. You have to and go the up to fog, SAG. And the fog was in, like Mystic, Connecticut. You know, I, the fog, the side, I, I was like hours, Paul, lost. <laughs> uh, the, the side roads, as they call them. Just stay home, Tom. It's staycation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.